0: We are in one of my favorite passages, actually. Hebrews chapter 4 is actually an amazing passage. That we learned a couple of weeks ago, if you remember back that far. We were learning and we were studying uh, this amazing fact of the, the Hebrew writer looking at Moses and looking at the Sabbath and showing us how the, the Lord Jesus leads us and is our better Sabbath rest. And in fact, I think this is a really great way in which we can understand what the Hebrew writer is doing throughout the book of Hebrews. And I've used this illustration before, but I'm going to try and expand upon it a little bit. Because I think to understand what he's doing throughout all of these 13 chapters, I think you have to imagine, imagine if you can, a huge living room, a sitting room, whatever you call it. It's filled with recliners and chairs. And there's a huge, massive fireplace right in the middle of it. And all of the recliners and chairs are sort of centered around this fireplace. It's the center of the room. And like any fireplace, this fireplace has above it a mantelpiece. And of course, if you have a mantelpiece, you know that sometimes, most of the time, the things that are on the mantelpiece are things, items, trinkets, or things like that that have great significance. They're not just items that are just thrown up there. I can testify to that because my wife has spent a lot of care in what goes on top of our mantelpiece. It's not just, let's just throw that on there and see if it looks good. It's usually items that are placed very significantly, very importantly, or perhaps they're items that are precious to you. They're family heirlooms, they're perhaps treasures from past uh, generations or what have you. They're items that are there that are precious. And actually they're items that, that people have to notice when they walk in the room because you want to stir conversation or what have you. But imagine, maybe you're having some sort of dinner party, okay, let's just imagine that, and everyone goes into this living room for just further conversation or whatever, and what if one of your dinner guests started going up to your mantelpiece and just handling every single piece on your mantelpiece? What if they just started touching them all? For me, that would drive me crazy. (laughs) Maybe it would drive you crazy too. Don't touch the things up there. But what if they didn't just start touching and handling them and taking them off and so you're, they're not putting them back in the same place. But what if they started talking about them and then tried to start convincing you that your precious items on your mantelpiece are actually not, in fact, that precious at all? Number one, that's a very rude dinner guest. But also you would probably start to get really annoyed As each item he takes it off, maybe let's pretend he grabs your your basketball championship trophy from your high school senior year. And he's, he's examining it, he's looking at it, and then he says just casually off the cuff, oh yeah, I have a few of these, and a couple from college too. And it doesn't make you feel very good doesn't make you feel very uplifted, Yeah, having all these things kind of be denigrated, so to speak. And it doesn't matter what it is. This dinner guest proceeds to uh, sort of grab an heirloom or a a fancy public uh, 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 picture with a public figure or some sort of piece of art. But it doesn't matter. Each item that he grabs, he seems to have something superior in his own home. (laughs) That would be very irritating. It would be very frustrating. (laughs) A very frustrating dinner. And the longer that happened, I perhaps imagine you would get even more frustrated the longer that went on. It's a very silly illustration. But I also think that that's exactly what the Hebrew writer is doing in a very profound way. And in fact, you could just imagine this book is laid out like a sermon. It's laid out like, uh, almost like a preacher preaching a message to a church, to a group of people. And essentially what he's doing is he's going up to the proverbial, we could say, the proverbial mantelpiece of Jewish religion. And he's taking each item off and examining it and he's showing them that actually Jesus is way better than this. And he's already done it. In chapter 1, he was talking about the prophets. In chapter 1 also, and into chapter 2, he's talking about the angels. In chapter 3, he starts off by talking about Moses. And then he starts talking about the Sabbath. You see, each item is this precious thing that has been held up with great, great reverence in the Jewish faith. Within long ages of Judaism. And the preacher here is just basically saying, it's good, but Jesus is better. And it just so happens that this particular next section that he's going to get into is actually perhaps one of the bigger, one of the bigger items or trinkets or trophies you can imagine on this mantelpiece of Jewish religion. It's so big, in fact, that he's going to spend all the way from this chapter, chapter, uh, the end of chapter four and chapter five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. He's going to spend all of those chapters talking about it. He's going to spend all of that time talking about this. Huge idea that Jesus Christ, as he says in verse number 14 of chapter 4, is the great high priest for us, for the church. This is a theme that you'll see covered, and we're going to be referencing this idea for several chapters. There's a little bit of an interlude in chapter number 6, but essentially this theme covers all the way through chapter 10. As he's trying to get them to see just how weighty it is that Christ is our high priest. He's the high priest of the gospel. He first introduces this idea actually back in chapter number 2. If you remember chapter 2 verse 17 where he says this. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. And it's almost like he just gives this passing little reference to this idea that he's going to come back to right here. It's almost just getting this in the people's minds. You can see them, whoa, what did he just say? And then he goes on and talks about something else. And then right here, chapter 4, verse 14, since then we have a great high priest in Jesus. And he's going to spend basically the rest of the time in these following chapters explaining what he means by that. This is his thesis, if you will. This is his premise that he's going to expand and enlarge upon all the way through chapter 10. But before we get to those verses at the end of chapter 4, I think what we have to do and what we have to understand is, is what the role of the high priest was specifically, but also what the role of the priesthood was in general. Because to us this is kind of an unfamiliar paradigm. The idea of a priesthood especially in high priests specifically. But the writer here gives us a glimpse of that actually in chapter number 5. So I'm going to read again those first four verses in chapter 5. Because they give us a glimpse of what it meant and what it looked like for someone to function as God's priest. Notice he says, For every high priest... You see, in four verses, this is an instance of when we get a glimpse of his mastery of Jewish history. Because in four verses, he has just skimmed over large, sweeping swaths of Jewish history. The religious life of the people of Israel, of the people of Judah, was almost entirely one that was conducted through the ministry of priests. Folks, wouldn't. File into, you know, the tabernacle or or the temple or even the synagogue, and, and a priest would greet them. And he would perform whatever was the needed sacrifices for that hour, whatever that may be, whatever that may entail. And they were. Able to do that because as he says there, they were men who were set apart. They were chosen by God for a particular spiritual service. As he says there, on behalf of men in relation to God. The priests you see were men who were separated, set apart for this holy ministry and function. That they would represent the people before God. They were chosen specifically for that role. If you remember, actually go with me to Exodus chapter 28 just want you to see, because he references Aaron, so it's good to see where Aaron is first called. Exodus 28 is where Aaron is first sort of inaugurated, instituted, if you will, as the first high priest of the people of Israel. You'll notice verse number 1 of Exodus 28. Notice what it says. Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, this is God speaking to Moses, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel, to serve me as priests. So part of this whole function of God's people, all all of the laws and the ordinances and the ways in which the people of God were supposed to live and conduct their lives of faith was meant to be conducted through the ministry of the priests, Aaron being the first. And actually Exodus 20 gives us an amazing glimpse at this whole paradigm of the priesthood. Especially in light of the high priest. It shows us how God sovereignly chose Aaron to be in this particular role. But also it gives us a very amazing and and serious and sobering look at what it was like to actually serve in that office. You see the majority of Exodus 20, if you read all of its verses, it's actually very tedious to do so. Because the whole time basically it's telling you what the priests were supposed to wear. it's giving you minute to the tiniest thread of detail how they were supposed to dress in the house of God, in the temple of the Lord, in the tabernacle. How they were supposed to conduct themselves when they were performing their priestly duties. Look at verse number 2. And you, notice, shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for... For the glory and for beauty, and you shall speak to all the skillful who have, who I have filled with a spirit of skill, and they make, and that, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make. A breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined limb, and on it goes. For all of these verses explaining with very careful precision exactly what the priests were supposed to wear. Why? Because they were representing the people before a holy God. And essentially you could sum up most of this chapter and just say it's God telling these guys who he was separating for this very specific, very special purpose. Don't take this lightly. Don't be flippant This is serious business when you walk into this place. It's not just a tent. This is the tabernacle of the living God in whose presence you are now entering. And I think it's even made even more weighty, I think, when you realize what, especially the breast piece that he would wear on his chest, what that was supposed to signify. Look at verse number 15. Notice. Listen to these details. You shall make a breath piece of judgment in skilled work. In the style of the ephod, you shall make it of gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarns, yarns and fine twined linen shall you make it. It shall be a square and doubled, a span its length and a span its breadth. You shall set it in four rows of stones, a row of sardius, topaz and carbuncle shall be the first row. In the second row, an emerald of emerald, a sapphire and a diamond. the third row, adjacent, and agate and an amethyst. In the fourth row a barrel and an onyx and a jasper. And they shall be set in gold filigree. And there shall be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. You see, each little thing there is meant to point to something. But the priest wasn't just representing himself. Notice actually in verse 28. And they shall bind the breastpiece. By its rings to the rings of the ephod with a lace of blue so that it may lie on the, uh, lie skill, uh, excuse me, lie the skillfully woven band of the ephod so that the breastpiece shall not come loose from the ephod. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel and the breastpiece of judgment on his heart. And when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And at the breastpiece of judgment you shall put the urim and the thumim. And they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes before the Lord. Thus shall Aaron bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. You see what's happening. It's not just God being particular about what he wants his priests and servants to wear. He is making it so everyone sees this is a holy calling. But also as Aaron was stepping into his priestly duties, he's representing the people that he's serving. So much so that he has their names emblazoned on his chest. When he goes before God, he's not going there of his own accord, doing his own thing. He goes there as a representative of God's chosen people. And he's bearing their judgment on his own chest. He was going there before God himself. And he's the chosen one to do this. He is the one specifically chosen by God to authenticate all of those practices, all of those rites, all of those sacrifices. As the writer of the Hebrews says back in chapter 5 of our text, all of those gifts and sacrifices. And maybe you're like me because maybe you grew up in church a little bit and you have some familiarity and we talk about it, right? We talk about the sacrifices all the time. We don't always know, I think a good study that we should perhaps make someday is studying each one, uh, each one of those sacrifices and what they meant. Not that we would do that, I don't want to be slaughtering lambs in here, That's not up my alley. But also I think it's meant to show us something very significant about how the Lord uh, wants his people to conduct themselves. Because I think it's really interesting to read about all of these different things that the people of God were supposed to do. And. If you're like me, maybe you find it hard to wrap your mind around that system. A system of regular, daily bringing animals into a place and sacrificing them because of your sin. It feels so foreign. It feels so ancient. It feels so violent. And in fact, one of the things I want to do is, I'm not going to be too grotesque, I I promise. But um, I, I don't want us to have this sanitized view of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was not a very kid-friendly place. It was not like, you know, going to Chuck E. Cheese or something. This is a place of lots of violence and smoke and viscera as all of these animals are being sacrificed and, and the incense burned and all of that blood was being strewn on particular things at particular times in order to show exactly the height and the depths of the people's sins. That this is what it costs. You see, that's why all of it was necessary. <laughs> because I think that's the hard thing. Why? We come to church, and we don't think anything of it oftentimes. Church for people in those days was way different <laughs> We can often try to think about why all of that was necessary. Why Why do we have to shed all of that blood? and All of this, the necessity of the priesthood, the necessity of the sacrifices, it all stretches back to that horrible moment in the Garden of Eden when our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned. They took of what was not theirs and they broke forever that fellowship and the communion with the Lord himself. And as a result, what? Remember the curse. They were shut out from the garden. But more importantly, they were cut off from God's presence. That's the true sort of nail in the coffin at the end of Genesis 3. Is not just that they were leaving the garden, but they were leaving that amazing, intimate communion that they had with their very creator. And such is why in Genesis 4, what's the very first thing we see doing? We see Cain and Abel going to that entrance that was guarded by angels, offering sacrifices. Why? To commune with the Lord himself again. To get a glimpse, a a foretaste of that presence that they had lost, that their parents had jettisoned. You see, this is what sin always does. It separates you. Isaiah 59.2 says this, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He does not hear. The reason why there was any such thing as the priesthood at all, as the high priest especially, is because God the Father, the Creator, cannot commune with sin, as He says in Habakkuk. He can't even look at it. That's how holy he is. That's how high and mighty our Lord is. So what's needed, therefore, is a representative. A representative in righteousness who can commune with God on behalf of the guilty. That's a priest. In a nutshell, that's what a priest was supposed to do. He was supposed to be one who had separated himself according to the call of God. And he was meant to represent the people before God in a way that could commune with God and atone for the people's sins. And this is particularly true of the high priest, as we've been noting here this morning already. You see, the high priest bears an even more significant calling than anyone else within his priesthood. For that, actually go with me to Leviticus chapter number 16. I want you to see this before we get back to Hebrews. Leviticus 16 is, I would say, perhaps one of the most significant chapters in all of the Old Testament. But especially of Leviticus. It's a chapter which tells us of the great and amazing privilege and responsibility that the high priest had. Who was appointed a sanction called of Yahweh to enter into what we would call the most holy place on a specific day. The day of atonement. This is I would say the the most significant day of all of the priesthood of all. And we are briefly reminded about this. Look at verse number 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place. So just as a prelude, just as a preface to what's going on, we see here what's happening. God is giving Aaron and Moses a warning that you cannot just come trouncing into the most holy place of the most high God just flippantly, just nonchalantly. He's referencing an incident that happened a couple of chapters ago in Leviticus chapter 10 where Aaron's sons... Go into that very place, the place where the ark was, the place where the very presence of God was. And they were there, not called by God, not sanctioned by him at all. And they were burning unauthorized incense in that room. And immediately they were vaporized on the spot. It's a serious, uh, sobering story to think about. But it's getting into the mind's eye of all these people that this is how holy God is. (laughs) And you can't just take it lightly walking into this place. So here in Leviticus 16, what do we have happen? We have God explain to Aaron himself and to Moses how all of these unholy people, how they were supposed, supposed to approach the living God. How can they can have communion with him again? How can they have fellowship? How can they experience his presence again? And he's very specific about all this. You can read this whole chapter as he prescribes about what to do at each step of the process. You have the, the big temple, the, or the big tent of meeting, notice the tabernacle, and there's a gate there, and there's, a, there's, a, there's an altar there, there's a, a basin there. At each step of the way, there, there's a sacrifice, there's an offering, there's a washing, there's a sacrifice, and on and on he goes. Because all of this was meant to demonstrate how holy Yahweh was. But also how serious it was that these people were people of sin. They needed someone to represent them before the holy God of all things. In order to make atonement. Look at the end of the chapter. Leviticus, 9, or Leviticus 16 verse 29. Notice. And it shall be a statute to you. This is sort of God summing up this whole thing. This shall be a statute to you forever. That in the seventh month and the tenth day of the month you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work. Either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as a priest in the Father's place, that is, the high priest, shall make atonement, wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting, and for the altar. And he shall make atonement for the priest, and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of their sins. You know, when people talk about this idea that there's no sort of grace in the Old Testament, that there's no sort of gospel in the Old Testament, I want to take them right here to Leviticus chapter 16. Because the whole chapter deals with that. It deals with atonement. And in fact, that word is mentioned 15 times in this chapter alone. It's a word which literally means to purge or to reconcile, or we could say to make peace. You see, everything that's happening here in this chapter is God's prescribed way in which He is, made, is it, which the people and He are at peace again. The peace and fellowship that was lost because of of Adam and Eve, because of the garden, because of rebellion, because of sin. All of that is here, and this amazing moment on this particularly prescribed day of God is here restored. All of that fellowship, all of that peace is renewed again by the offering of an innocent sacrifice who died in the place of the guilty. That's what's happening. Whether it's a bull or or goat or a lamb, as it's prescribed here, what's happening is innocent blood is being shed on behalf of those who stand guilty. You, a high priest, conducting all of this, and the people were then made to see: this is how God's presence persists for them. They needed a substitute. They needed a representative. They needed someone to stand for them and make peace with God because of sin. And this is what the ministry of the high priest was supposed to do. He was appointed just for that sake. That's what a high priest was. He was given that amazing calling. All of that, if you go back to Hebrews 5, all of that, that's summarized right here. Where he says, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men. They're acting on behalf of their brothers and sisters of Israel. Acting on their behalf as they walk into the tabernacle. And they bear the blood of the bull here. And they wash themselves and they bear the sacrifice here. They're doing all of that on behalf of the people. Notice, in relation to God. They're representing the people before God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Making atonement. He's an atoning representative. And he connects it to Aaron. But then notice what happens. He takes this whole topic one step further by declaring. And of course he probably knew that this was happening. But he declares that it's Christ himself who is the high priest that every sinner needs. Because as soon as he ends, notice verse 4. And no one takes this honor for himself. But only when called by God. Just as Aaron was. And everyone's tracking with him. And then he says, so also Christ. He makes the change, the transition right there. Yes, we're talking about the historical priesthood of Aaron, but also, so, also, Christ. And he proceeds to explain how it is that Christ is the great high priest of our faith, <laughs> Only better than Aaron. Only better than any of those other high priests that preceded him. Notice what he says. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. There's a lot going on here. But I love exactly what he's doing because he says, yes, just as the priest was called by God, he was not a self-appointed, self-congratulatory person acting in that office. So too did Christ not exalt himself. But he was ordained, he was appointed by God the Father to what? Be a priest forever. And again, he's quoting from the Old Testament. He's quoting from Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. And he's Making it very clear that this has been the scheme, this has been the plan of God from the very beginning. That when Jesus came to earth, he did not come what? He did not come flaunting his identity as God's son as a way to sort of take that honor for himself. No, rather he humbled himself to a place where he receives that honor from above, son priest forever again he's alluding i think to that moment in matthew chapter 3 and other places in the gospels where jesus is baptized and that moment is what the whole trinity is there john baptizes jesus in the river of the jordan and then the the spirit of god descends like a dove and god the father's voice himself is speaking he says this is my beloved son you can almost imagine that this is Christ's moment where he is ordained as the people's priest. For the rest of his life, he lives a priestly life. A life of representing the people before God. You can imagine as God says, this is my beloved son. It's almost like he's saying, this is your great high priest. He wasn't. Flaunting his identity, he put himself in subjection, Christ did. He did not exalt himself, he lowered himself. And just like the high priest, this is awesome, this is so amazing. Just like the high priest in Israel's day wasn't uh, uh, some foreigner, he was chosen from among men so that what? He could deal gently with them. It's a really important point. Because so too was Christ. Taken from among men, we could say, did you notice that in verse number 7? In the days of his flesh. Or, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, he was born in the likeness of men. Philippians 2, 6, though Christ Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a certain, and being born in the likeness of men. You want to know why he spent all of that time at the beginning part of Hebrews asserting and arguing and declaring that Jesus is not just God and he's not just a good teacher. He's God and man. It's because of this right here. He was chosen from among men. He was made in the likeness of men yet without sin as he says in verse number 15 of chapter 4. Why? So that he could deal gently. That is literally have compassion on who? His fellow brothers the ignorant and the wayward. You see, it was meant for this reason. Back in Israel's day, the high priest was so that the high priest was not above the ones that he was representing. It was so that he wouldn't get a haughty mind. He is made just like them. He is chosen from among men so that he can deal gently with his fellow brothers and sisters. Because he himself is beset with weakness. And yes, so too was Jesus beset with weakness. Hebrews 2.17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of men. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hebrews 4.14 Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We have a priest who knows what it feels like to be human can sympathize with exactly where you are. He has felt all of the betrayal, all of the hatred, all of the anger, all of the vitriol. He has felt everything that you have felt yet without sin. The writer has been insisting upon this and insisting upon this because to believe in Jesus and that he is 100% God and 100% man is not only just vital to your faith. It's not just the thing that we like to celebrate at Christmas time because we love baby Jesus in the manger. This is the most important thing to the whole scheme of salvation. If Jesus was not man, then Jesus is just another angel sent from heaven just bearing news from there. But if Jesus was not God, then he would not have been able to endure all of the sufferings that he was meant to endure. He would have been crushed under the weight of sin, under the weight of bearing the iniquity of us all. But that's the point. He is God and man. So he feels the weight of your sin. In fact, the full weight of it. And he can leave it behind in the grave because he is God in the flesh. See, because Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, we, yes, we can declare, and yes, as he says, we can hold fast that profession of our faith. That we have a great high priest who knows, ex- who knows us exactly, knows us intimately, down to the minutest molecule, yet without sin. We have a perfect priest, unlike Aaron, unlike Levi, Unlike all of those other high priests in the past who failed and had so many blunders on their resume. Unlike all of the high priests in the Old Testament who were ordered to make sacrifices for themselves before they could make any atonement for the people. And in fact, you don't have to go there. Leviticus 16, if you look at verse 6 and 11 and 24, over and over again, you see this amazing statement. Actually, I'll just read it so I don't mess it up. Leviticus 16. He mentions this several times. And I think it's so fascinating because we're we, in Leviticus 16, we're talking about the high priest making atonement for the people on this special day, the day of atonement. Leviticus 16:6. 6. This is Aaron, the high priest, the one chosen by God to be a holy representative before God. And it says, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself. And shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Verse 11. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself. Shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Verse 24. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place. And put on his garments and come out. And offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people. And make atonement for himself and for the people. You get the picture. The high priest chosen from among men, not only so that he can deal, deal gently with those who were his brothers and sisters of Israel, but also that he could realize that this atonement that he's making here in this place is for him too. You see, Aaron, the high priest, needed an atoning sacrifice just like Joe Schmo of Israel did. He wasn't better, he wasn't above them, he wasn't uh, outside of that need You see, this is the great, amazing, glorious news that we have in Jesus. Why? Because he has no atoning that he needs to pay for himself. He's perfect. He doesn't have to drag a bull behind him to pay for his own sins before he pays for yours. The only baggage that accompanies our high priest when he walks into the Holy of Holies is yours and mine. He drags your baggage of sin and your load of sin and he pays for it all in that most holy place of the cross. You see... In Old Testament times, that that place, that inner sanctum that only the high priest was allowed to go to. You had the, the, the tent of meeting, which is where most people were allowed to congregate. Then you would go a step further and you have the holy place where some of the priests were allowed to go to. And then you have the holy of holies, the most holy place that was only where the high priest was allowed to go to. And then that place you could literally you can think about it this way: this is that the the holy of holies was this place where the holiness of God and the blood of atonement would collide, and that's exactly what the cross is. It's a place where the holiness of God and the blood of atonement. Are poured out for all of the world to see. Is the place as it says in Psalm 85 verse 10. Where the steadfast love and the faithfulness of God meet. Where righteousness and peace kiss one another. And on that cross the priest and the offering are one and the same. You see this is the amazing part about the fact that we have Jesus. Our great high peace. He walks in there. With no offering but himself. He doesn't bring this is where we're going to get to. I'm, I'm jumping ahead, but it's okay. Jumping ahead in Hebrews. He brings no other blood into that place. Why? Because he lays his own down. He's the high priest who walks into that place where he becomes both the offerer, the one who is offering the sacrifice and the offering himself. See, where Jesus is hanging on a cross with nails blatantly piercing his hands and his feet, he's fulfilling his calling as God's high priest, where he's literally fulfilling all of those old sacrifices from, Le- from Leviticus 16 and beyond, where he is making atonement for the sins of his people by he himself being our atoning sacrifice. The blood on the altar is his. See, this is what Christ has done. That's why he is a true and better high priest of our faith. Because he's a high priest who becomes both offerer and offering. He represents you before God, and he takes all of your sin, and he takes all of your weakness, and he takes all of your rebellion, and he places it on the altar of before the most holy God, and he pays for it all by shedding his own blood. He's the great high priest of our faith. The one who spans that vast cavern of separation between you and God. You see, yes, Stephen still, that cavern exists between sinners and God. That... that Ocean of separation between us and God still exists. And yet it is spanned. It is crossed. It is bridged because of Christ. The high priest who allows for communion and fellowship to happen once again. And we can hold fast and with confidence draw near to this God. Because of him. Because he was obedient unto the point of death. Even the death on the cross as he says. And such is why verse 8 of chapter number 5 of Hebrews, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Talk about humility. Talk about subjecting himself, even though he was the son of God, the heir to the throne of all the things in heaven. Yet he lowered himself to the point where he learned what it was like. He understood what it meant to suffer subjection and surrender and hardship and suffering, even to the point of his own death. And as he says there, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Friends, your standing in Christ is sure because of Christ. The high priest has done it. The high priest has already made atonement for your sins. It's done. It's over. No more need for high priests. No more need for sacrifices. Why do we not kill animals in church on Sunday morning? (laughs) The only blood that was needed to be shed has already been shed. It's already been spilled. It's already been poured out over that mercy seat for you. And now forever, you have been made atoned with God. That's the gift of the good news. The sad part is is that some people go their whole lives stiff-arming that. The The saddest reality to me is that people are living this life and going into eternity, And they have forgiveness offered to them. No one dies without forgiveness being paid for. Jesus Christ paid for their forgiveness. The only thing that's stopping you from experiencing forgiveness, from experiencing atonement right here, right now, this morning, is your own unbelief. Unbelievers go to hell. Not people who weren't forgiven. Those who disbelieve in the fact that they needed atonement, that they needed forgiveness. Those are the ones who step over Jesus' dead body and go straight into eternal damnation. And nothing makes me sadder because Jesus has paid for it. Jesus has done it. He is the high priest who has made atonement for your sin and for mine forever. It is eternally done. It is finished, he says. Do you believe that this morning? See, the preacher in Hebrews is is basically asking these people, do you want to keep, do you want to run back to that old priesthood way, that old way of Aaron, that old way of doing all these things? Let me show you something so much better. Jesus is not just a good teacher. He wasn't just a philanthropist. He wasn't just a humanitarian. He wasn't just a prophet that was especially ordained by God. He was prophet, priest, and king. And he was a king because he was priest and because he was prophet. He was all three at one time. Don't trade him for something else. Don't trade him in for something else that's way less superior, that's way inferior to him. He is the priest forever. Because he was God and man, come in the flesh, he deals gently with you who are so lost and weary, so lost and wayward. He is the, the priest who makes atonement for all the sinners in the world. See, that's the amazing thing that we have this morning. Every single time that Christ is preached, atonement is once again offered to you. Have you been running away from that? It takes humility to actually even put yourself in that position. No one wants to admit they're deficient. No one wants to admit that they have something that they need to be paid, that needs, that needs amending, that needs fixing, that needs uh, yes, reconciliation. No one wants to admit that there's some sort of hole in their life that they can't seem to fill. My friends, stop your running. You have a priest who is just waiting to deal gently with you and invite you into his atoning fellowship. That's the gift offered in Christ. That's the gift offered when the high priest lays down his life for you, and that's what he's done. My friends, you have a great high priest who lives forever because he didn't stay dead. He walked out of that grave and all of the sin of all humanity was paid for and he says yes believe in the one who he has sent my friends that's what the gospel is you're offering a certain reality I think I've talked about this before and I'm, I'm going off but it's okay I think Christians would be the most happy people of all if they realized that their forgiveness was not up to them. Your your forgiveness and your joy, I should say this, your joy should come from the fact that your forgiveness is not up to you. It's certain in Christ. It's settled forever. You are forgiven. Period. You are forgiven this morning. I hope that you know that. I hope that you believe that. I don't think we have to walk around with these gloomy faces on because we're worried about the next thing we're going to do or say or worried about what's going to happen. You are forgiven, period. Christ has done it. He's the high priest who's paid for it all. Do you believe it? May the joy of the Lord fill your bones and fill your soul with the great resounding news that you are forgiven once for all. My life is hid in Christ forever, in Christ my Savior and my God. Before the throne of God, we can all stand atoned because the high priest has done it. Amen and amen.